This is a big week in the world of watches. Friday is the Grand Prix d'Horlogerie de Genève, the GPHG. It's essentially the Oscars of watchmaking, the industry's biggest awards. So we thought it would be fun ahead of the awards to have a couple of our editors get together in the studio and talk about which watches they think should win. We're also going to preview the auctions, which start just the next day on Saturday night. We're going to talk about top lots, trends we've noticed, and the watches that we would want to bid on. This is a good one, folks. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Hook & Albert. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more about this global travel brand and their range of travel accessories. You can also learn more at hookandalbert.com. All right, good to have everybody around a table or I guess a couple tables. We don't get to do that too often, do we? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh, so that's Kara sitting to my right. Hi. And then we've, we've also got uh, John's here. Very happy to be here. And our fearless leader, Mr. Ben Clymer. Hello, Stephen. It's good to, good to be together. Whole family. That's right. The whole, not, the whole squad. Not quite the whole family. I guess no. we, we don't have Jack here. And that's James, Jack. We don't have James. Yeah. We don't have Jack for a specific reason, though, which is we're here to talk about the Grand Prix, the GPHG Awards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Jack is on the jury this year, so he can't be a part of this conversation because I think that would violate the terms and he would get thrown in Swiss jail or something like that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Stop for him sure. at the border for sure. Yeah, right. he'll get locked in the President Wilson with no Nespresso for an extended <laughs> period of time. That's good. Um, thanks, thanks. I'm glad you like that one. Good delivery. Um, <laughs> perfect. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we don't have Jack, who's a current jury member, but we do have Ben, so who has served on the jury a couple times, three times? Uh, three or four, yeah. Yeah, like so Ben, can you give us a little intro to what the Grand Prix is and a little bit about like how it works and what we're looking at here before we, we get into the kind of nuts and bolts? Yeah, of course. So the, the, the Grand Prix, uh, the Grand Prix Horlogerie de Genève, GPHG, uh, is basically the Oscars of watchmaking. It is the most uh, reputable, most widely um, you know, kind of reviewed uh, award ceremony and watches. You know, other magazines do it, but this is this is run by a nonprofit. It's run by a charity. Uh, it, it is supposed to be impartial, uh, apolitical, etc. Uh, it is not completely, of course, nothing is, uh, but they do a pretty good job of kind of keeping it kind of you know straight and narrow. Uh, it's been around since the early two thousands, I believe. F. P. Jordan was the winner of of a few of the first uh, few years, which I know caused some some controversy back then. Um, and it's been it's had a, a long you know kind of storied history of of at times you know launching. The careers of of small independent watchmakers, Carl Viltiline and one early, Laurent yeah. Ferrier one early, uh, and they went on to become you know pretty well established brands. Sure. Um, Patek Philippe used to participate. Rolex has never participated, but Tudor has and has has seen right. great success and is continuing to participate. continuing to. Um, LVMH typically does. Uh, some Richemont brands do, like Lange has historically. So has Vacheron. I think they both are this year as well. Yep. Um, Mont Blanc, but it, it's it's a it's kind of a weird mix because it's really up to the brands to 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 submit their watches. So it's not open to everyone. Basically, a brand says, "Hey, we've got this watch." Uh, we will give it to you uh, for the, the time period of, of of at least three months, if not longer, uh, to go on kind of this world tour. So unfortunately, you get a lot of like the, the really crazy watches, uh, the ones that are still in prototype phase, or they you know if if, it, if they have one, for example, uh, they can't give the watch to the Grand Prix for for that extended period of time. So right. occasionally, there's a really great watch that just isn't into the mix for for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, the the, the GPHG is is the Oscars of watchmaking, and it's it's a big deal. Uh, you know, there are critics of it because. 
because Rolex and Patek, for example, do not compete. Which are two pretty big blind spots, right? Like yep. it's, it's hard to assess yeah. the industry without those two. It, no, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, it, it's tricky. It's This is the Swiss, uh, and with the Swiss, you have some sort of considerations that you wouldn't really think are, are important, but, but are. And, you know... You know, it's one of those things where if you're Rolex or Patek, you're you're the king, right? Rolex is the is the king of the commercially made watches. Patek is the king of the the high end handmade watches. And if they were to lose, and again, Patek Philippe did participate in the past, and they did end up losing, not losing, they they, they didn't win the category, which it's not losing. It just means you didn't win. Right. Uh, in their views, <laughs> I think they lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they they viewed that as a slight, and so in that particular year, they ended up losing to, I believe, H Moser for that great. Uh, perpetual that they did. Oh, this was like yeah, 2006, yeah, yeah. and that, like that's a that's a fucking cool thing. Like that no that joke. is a really you know thoughtful movement. Uh, but I think they were they were pretty miffed that that the great Patek Philippe lost to H Moser, uh, and this is hearsay, of course. But um, you know that that is kind of the the story. And Rolex doesn't Rolex is not a watch company, you know. And right. I think you know yeah. Stephen and everybody in the room kind of gets that Rolex doesn't play the same game that everybody else does. So totally. they don't really need to. Tudor they do. Um, so, you know, the, the, the GPHG is without a doubt the best thing we have in the watch industry. But uh, there, are, there are some critics that say, you know, without Rolex and Paddock and AP's not in it this year. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's very easy. This is a very political, you know, industry. And it's very easy for brands to get all up in a huff and say, oh, you yeah. know, we lost to so-and-so. How dare you? We're going to pull back from the, for the next five years. But still, uh, you know, it is the, it's the ultimate networking event in Geneva uh, in the watch industry of each fall. It's around the auction season, so it's, it's a popular weekend. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a neat thing. For sure, it's, it's black tie sometimes. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm getting to attend this year for the first time. I've never ah. been before. It should, be, it should be fun. I'll be there with Jack, uh, taking all kinds of amazing Instagram stories of Jack. So stay tuned. Um, you, so you've been on the jury, Ben, and, and, you know, the brands submit their watches the watches go through a kind of like early, early selection process. Mm-hmm. Then they get whittled down to essentially six watches per category as the, the quote unquote pre-selection. Yep. And that's what the jurors then make their their final votes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into the watches, who's on this jury? So you were on it. I but was, who, yeah. Who else is on this jury? Who's yeah, making these decisions? It's, it's, it's really a great, great list of people. I mean, it's the who's who of the watch world. So it's it's journalists such such as I was, uh, and Jack currently is. Uh, it is retailers occasionally. So I was on it with Mike Tay. I was uh, on it with Eva from Wempy. Eva Wempy. Um, Philippe Dufour was on it with me a few years. Um Aurel Box is the chairman of it, so he's you know he's you know at the hub of the watch world in Geneva. Uh, Claude Sphere is a great collector. John Goldberger, a great collector. William Messina was on it for I think one or two years with me. I think he still is. Uh, Elizabeth Dorr, um, retailers, actual watchmakers, trainers. I mean, really historians. Everybody that 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 could have a name in the watch industry um, is there. So you it's know? a pretty diverse set of it, it is. opinions and perspectives. It is. And like, you know, there are jewelers, which, which uh, Kim Eva from Wempy is really a jeweler. She's not really a watch person. And then you have Philippe Dufour, who's really a watch person, knows nothing about jewelry. And, they, you know, it's fun sure. to see that, that dynamic. Uh, Claude Sphere, even though he's a big watch collector, is a jeweler. Uh, you know, so everybody kind of relies on each other to, to learn. And so, you know, there are jewelry categories or there have been historically. And so for those, we, we would rely on on people that have expertise in jewelry to kind of guide us. Um, but it all kind of like, you're, you know, every vote is confidential. So you can vote however you want. You don't have to agree with the, with the group uh, with the group chat. Uh, inevitably, there are, you know, kind of the loudest voices in the room always, you know. Um, I've never been on it with Jack, but I would imagine his is pretty fucking loud. I would um, imagine, yeah. <laughs> uh, William Rohr is also very loud. Um, but 
but you know, and Arel does his, his you know, Arel is the master, of kind of like you know, managing people and, and egos for that matter, and he does a, a masterful job at, at kind of like saying, all right, guys, like let's let's remember, like you know, everybody has an opinion here, it's okay. Um, so yeah, it's it, we would all get together in early November, a few days before the the actual ceremony, and debate, uh, and it really was a debate. Cool. And so the award ceremony is going to be. On Friday, November 9th, um, we will, as always, have uh, live coverage for you on the site. Um, but before we do that, we thought it would be fun to get a couple of our editors around the table and to go through the list and have everybody give not their predictions for what's going to win, but who they would vote for. So we're going to go through these categories in a sort of random-ish order, I guess. Kind of an arbitrary order that I decided. Um, <laughs> since I am the boss. But yeah. uh EVP. Yeah, so let's let's dig into it and everybody can kind of jump in and give their perspectives and hopefully we'll have at least one person get shouted down in disagreement. Okay. All right. So for the men's category, uh, there are six watches here. We're not going to run through every watch, but let's start maybe let's have Kara. How about you start? Mm-hmm. Who do you think wins the men's category this year? Well, let me find the nominees. My vote would be the Vacheron Constantine History Triple Calendar 1942, uh, which is their triple calendar that they came out with earlier this year. Um, I really like the complication, and I'm a traditionalist, and I like the way that it looks, if I'm being completely honest, and that's why I would choose it. John? Uh, I think i got to say, Kara uh, has good taste. I would also select uh, the Vacheron <laughs> Constantine. You win. <laughs> uh, History's Triple Calendar 1942. I, it's a beautiful watch. It's a really well-proportioned dial. I think calendar watches can be tricky sometimes, uh, and they really nailed it with this one. Uh, so it gets my vote. All right, and Ben? Uh, that's up there for me, um, for, for many reasons, one of which that watch is based on my actual watch that I own. Right, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'm a little impartial trend there. Trend center, uh, <laughs> center over here. Over here. Uh, but the, the Acrivia is, if I were on the jury this year, I would be voting for the Acrivia. Yeah, I'm with you. I gotta I got go with the Acrivia on this one. The, the Vacheron's an amazing watch, but the, uh, Acrivia Chronomet Contemporain, uh, is probably the best finished and like most interesting movement architecturally, uh, that I've seen in, in years. That movement... <laughs> Yeah. That watch completely blew me away. I had no idea what I was getting into when I saw it at Basel, and it just like completely, completely shocked me. Yeah, it's it's a really special thing. Uh, you know, Rex um, has made some Acrivia, I should say. Rex is the watchmaker's name. Acrivia has had some some amazingly complex, really you know, innovative watches. And I remember Will, our producer, and I were at FP Jorn maybe like five years ago, shooting this video on the Grand Sonnery, and he's just like, "Oh, this guy Rex is going to be the the real deal." And he used to work at Jorn. And, like, F.P. Jordan doesn't say anything nice about anybody, basically. Uh, and he's just like, this guy's legit, you know? And sort of like, okay. And then, you know, a lot of his earlier pieces I wasn't really into aesthetically, but this is, like, this looks like a simplicity, you know? This is this is a, yeah. a beauty for sure. But, you know, again, it's it's a small brand. Um, and I think in some ways you have to think about, like, what these awards would mean to these people. For Vacheron, it would mean something. Mm. For, for a Crivier, it would mean a whole hell of a lot, you know? Yeah, this could really put him in front of a whole, or the brand, I guess, in front of a whole different audience. Mm-hmm. All right, we got to uh, move through these relatively quickly. So let's go to kind of the other side of the coin. Let's go to the best ladies watch of the year, and we'll go the opposite way. Let's start with Ben. So for the ladies watch, my selection would be the Channel uh, Boyfriend Skeleton, uh, sometimes called Chanel. Uh, <laughs> this is a watch, a caliber actually designed in, in partnership with Romain Gautier, so it's like a real watch. Um, yeah. You get the cachet of the Chanel name. You have diamonds, which, you know, I think I'm told women like. Um, <laughs> so that, that would be it. You know, the, the other watches in here, like the Maurice Grossman is really a man's watch, just in a smaller case. The Beauvais is Beauvais. 
The Bulgari, who I generally really, really like, uh, this one doesn't speak to me as, as much as, as like a, a traditional Serpenti or some of the other stuff. When PJ is very nice, but nothing nothing really special. The Chanel, to me, is a nice balance of real watchmaking with the caliber from Romain, Romain Gauthier and, uh, and kind of a feminine, you know, kind of interest in being Chanel. Okay, uh, I also uh, selected Chanel uh, for this watch. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, having a, a movement that is designed uh, from the ground up uh, to be in a woman's watch is interesting. Um, I will also say that the, uh, the Beauvais dial is quite beautiful. Um, but if I'm voting, I'm going to pick the Chanel. No surprise. Also picked the Chanel um, for the same reasons as the movement is interesting, uh, it's dynamic, and it's the third caliber, I believe, that they came out with since taking um, their movements in-house. Um, and yeah, I think it's important to have technologically interesting watches as well as having some diamonds on there for women, just in case, you never know. Uh, so that is why it's my choice. Sweet. I'm going to make this one unanimous. I'm also going Chanel Boyfriend Skeleton. Uh, I think that's pretty, for me, this category is kind of a no-brainer. Like I think this watch is, is kind of heads and shoulders above the other five in this category. Some of the categories feel a little tighter. This one, I don't know. We'll see, we'll see how the voting goes uh, for the actual Grand Prix, but to me, this this one feels kind of like a no-brainer. Uh, let's make things a little more complicated here. Let's go to the men's complication prize. I'll wait for you guys to... Great pun, by the way, Stephen. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, John, you want to you wanna kick things off here? Uh, yeah, sure. So I selected uh, for the men's complication the Laurent Ferrier Galet Annual Calendar School Piece. Um, I just love the Laurent Ferrier aesthetic overall, and uh, this is the first watch that I know of that's... Uh, had this level of uh, complication in terms of a calendar uh, on the dial. And I think uh, in a similar way to the way that the Vacheron kind of nailed it with the design, uh, this uh, did it in a way that just looked look great for a Laurent Ferrier. Sweet. Cara? I went with the Bulgari Octofinissimo Turbion Automatic. I believe it holds three world records currently. Count them. Uh, the one, okay, let me see if I can remember this. One is... I was is, joking, for okay, the record. Okay, really? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> I, sh- anyways, I should have let you go, though. <laughs> Well, I made the well. I did. Anyways, okay. Yes, that's my choice. Uh, I think that Bulgari is doing really interesting things with their men's watches, and while aesthetically they're not for everyone, when you see them in the metal, they're actually very impressive and easy to wear. Sweet, Ben. Uh, so I respect the Laurent Ferrier. Obviously, you guys know I'm a fan. I was a little disappointed in this watch because it's the first uh, caliber they did without the natural escapement. So it's a Swiss lever escapement. So it's actually kind of a pared down movement, and then an annual calendar, which is not that difficult to make. It's beautiful. I mean, aesthetically, it's definitely the watch that, like, out of these these five, I would actually buy and wear. Uh, but it, based on the complication, I, I would be with Cara on this and say the, the automatic turbine from Bulgaria. I mean, if you if you haven't seen this watch in the metal, it's nuts. I mean, it is is wafer thin and it's automatic and it's a turbine. Yeah, I'm gonna probably go with the uh, Octofinissimo turbine automatic also. But I have to say, a close, close, close second for me is the uh, Vacheron Constantin uh, Overseas Ultra Thin Perpetual Calendar. Um, that watch is also super thin. It wears really well on the wrist. It's, you know, I think technically speaking, not quite as impressive as the Bulgari, which is, I think, what we're measuring here. But uh, if I were going to wear one of these watches, that's probably the watch I would want to to actually wear. So let's take a bit of a departure and go to the challenge watch category, which is a new category for this year. Uh, the watch has to be under 4,000 Swiss francs and smartwatches can participate. Uh, and when the initial round of watches came out, uh, Tag Heuer's smartwatch was included, and I think there was one other. It's kind of disappointing that none of those made it to the final six. It feels like it kind of like defeats the purpose right. of this category mm. ultimately existing. And but completely expected. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that is not surprising at all. Um, 
But, you know, what can we what can we do? We still have six pretty interesting watches, and I think they might actually be the most diverse group of watches yeah. uh, of yeah. any of the categories. But, yeah, so under 4,000 francs, I guess, could have been a smart watch, even though none of them are. Uh, ben, you want to kick things off here? Yeah. Um, some some interesting ones, honestly. Uh, you know, at least four pretty, pretty strong watches. Uh, I would probably go with the Tudor. Um, you know, it's it's an in-house GMT. Uh, you know, aesthetically, it's a little too close to a Rolex GMT for, for my taste. Um, but, you know, it's an in-house GMT for, for a great price. Uh, the Presage would probably be my, my second uh, place pick in-house. Um, you know, the Shippo enamel dials is a nice one. And then probably Longines would be my, my third pick there. Yeah, there's honestly a lot of good options yep. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, which one did you... Yeah, uh... there, there are a ton of good options. Uh, like Ben, I also uh, picked the, the Tudor. I mean, I think it's difficult to argue with the, with that Tudor. It's a, it's a fantastic watch, and it's gotten so much coverage, not just on our site, but everywhere around uh, for a reason, you know? Yeah. Um, also, uh, the Presage, the Shippo enamel dials are great that you can have uh, an enamel dial watch for less than $2,000 and have such quality and in-house movement, mm. um, you know? Seiko was fantastic. Yeah. I also picked the Tudor GMT. Uh, I think it is a great example from them this year, and they did a really good job. And I also agree with John on the Seiko Presage with the enamel. I think that's pretty insane. You can get an enamel dial watch for that price. Yeah, I'm going to echo what you guys said. I think ultimately I'd have a hard time not voting for the Tudor, but I got to say, voting for a Seiko feels good. You know, this is a night that feels... The whole thing about the GPHG is it feels, even though there are German and, and Japanese watchmakers involved, it feels so Swiss and it feels so like inside baseball. There's something about like a really high value, exceptional quality Japanese watch unseating all of these like old yeah. traditional players yep. uh, that just feels good. Like it warms my heart a little bit. So rebellious. Ah, you know, it's not rebellious. <laughs> it's, it's just like I like, uh, you know, you got to keep, got to keep everybody. in the danger zone. Got to keep everybody honest. Um... <laughs> Then we're going to go to the chronometry category, which is all about watches, as you'd expect, uh, that are focused on on accuracy and, and precision. So it's some pretty exceptional over-the-top pieces we've got here. Um, John, you want to maybe let us know which one you, you picked first? Okay, so I picked the uh, Debitune DB25 Starry Various uh, Chronometra Tourbillon. Okay, um, it's quite, anyways, a, quite a name there. It is quite a name. Um, What's interesting, though, is that it's a tourbillon that's chronometer, that's at least being presented as a chronometer, which is really unusual. Um, and you would think that you would see more of them, right? Because of the ostensible purposes of, tourbillon, of a tourbillon is uh, to make a more accurate watch. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was to make... Uh, to make money. Yeah. <laughs> that's better than what I was going to say. To make sure that like, all your friends knew you were rich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, then the, and then, of course, also this uh, Tag Heuer, uh, the Tete de Vipra, which uh, yeah. revives a, kind of like a chronometer... Uh, a chronometer uh, certification that I guess hadn't been used in some time. Yeah, those have to be certified in Besançon, right? In exactly. France yeah. as opposed to uh, by Cosk in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. That's true. Cara? Uh, I also picked the De Bethune Starry Various Chronometer Turbion. I think it's a very interesting watch, and I would be lying if I said I didn't love the starry dial. Yeah, that dial is amazing. <laughs> it's like that blued, uh, blued titanium with the little white gold yeah. stars. Yeah, it's super cool. Ben? Yeah, the same. I mean, you know, oh, Devathune De- is is you know one of those special brands that uh, you know is really appreciated by by hard, by the hardcore guys, but not really by anybody else. I mean, the all the all the watches here are are worthwhile for sure. But yeah, I think like, again, if I were on the jury, that's where I'd put my vote. All right. The only thing I question about that watch is the name Starry Various, which I guess is like a a play on Stradivarius. 
Interesting. At least that's what mm-hmm. I learned in, that's in Basel. Yeah. kind of annoying. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. All right, I changed my vote. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Devathun, please don't do that. Um, we love you, but please don't do that. Um, I got to be honest, I haven't seen, I think, most of these watches in the metal, so it's kind of hard for me to, to make a judgment here. The David Kandau Half Hunter is super cool. I've seen a lot of photos of it. I have not seen the watch in the metal. I don't think one has physically been in the United States yet. Um, but that watch looks pretty appealing to me. I think that that's the one that, Assuming it's as good as I think it is, I think that's probably where I'd have to put my vote. Um, let's go to sports watches. Sports watches are, as a lot of people probably know, the best-selling category in the U.S. Like these are the watches that normal human beings outside of like watch nerd circles actually buy. Um, that said, uh, there's a pocket watch is nominated here, which feels completely absurd. Um, you know, the the Mont Blanc. 1858 limited edition pocket watch is a, a beautiful object. It's a super cool thing. It has a hard stone dial. It's awesome, but it's like completely preposterous to nominate it in this category. Is if that the uh, one? I'm being honest. Is that the one that straps to your arm? It can strap to your arm. You can hang it Dashboard. off this like cord. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. I don't know. Am I, am I wrong here? It just seems silly that it's I in this category. Right. I, I think you're probably right. And, and this comes back to to you know, one of the, the pain points of this thing is like, I guarantee you some PR manager Mont Blanc was tasked with submitting watches for this thing. She's like, how about this? You know, it's like it. very little consideration seems to have been given to, to that decision there. Yeah. I mean, that said, Ben, which which watch do you ultimately think should win this category? Um, it's, it's difficult. There's nothing here that really speaks to me. You know, a lot of this stuff is just rehashes of, of older things. The, the Monaco, yeah, it's a cool watch, but like they've been making this forever. The Zenith, uh, it's nice. It's a flyback. Seiko, same same movement. Um, I would probably, I guess I would choose the Fabergé just because it's an interesting chronograph. You know, it's the, yeah. the Agenhor chronograph. Um, but nothing here is, is really compelling to me. Yeah. John? Uh, I'm going to go with the Seiko. I think this was a watch that was a real olive branch to uh, the Seiko lovers, the real diehard guys. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's way too big for me ever to wear, but uh, it would be cool, I think, to uh, spend a little time. And this is the the Prospects 1968 reissue, exactly. right? Uh, precisely, yeah. yes. Kara, I would also choose the Seiko. Boom, we're all going Seiko here, yeah. except Ben. Yeah. Ben's Ben's going nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's gonna. So let's go back to a ladies category. This is the ladies complication category because, of course, men's complications and ladies complications have to be separated. Very different Because the ladies' watches all have diamonds and enamel on them, and the men's watches are all, I don't know, not covered in diamonds or something. (laughs) You have to make some joke because this is, uh, we're talking about the Swiss watch industry, but how complicated women are. Oh. Uh, That that happens every time that this category is brought up in in the jury. Yeah. Does it really? It does. Oh, man. If I were on the jury, I would quit the jury. (laughs) I don't think so. Um, All right, do you want me to lead? No, I actually, g- I want to hear what you guys think first. Oh, okay. Women's complications. Uh, I'll go first here. Okay. Uh, I think the Van Cleef and Arpels, Lady Arpels Planetarium should win. It's not a totally new watch. It's kind of a rehash of uh, the Midnight Planetarium that they did a couple years ago. It's got this hard, this uh, kind of like a venturine dial with these little floating planets that move around the sun. It's It's basically a mini planetarium. Of course, since this one is for women, it's smaller and it's covered in diamonds and whatever. It's super cool. It is a really awesome watch. Um, and I highly recommend, if you ever have a chance to see one in person, go check it out. It's it's sick. John? Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you. The Lady Arpels hey, hey, hey. Planetarium. Yeah, that, it's a super cool watch. Uh, you're right. It is kind of a rehash of a previous men's watch, but the movement is totally new. Uh, they developed That's it true. from the ground up to make it. And just the way those planets kind of orbit the dial and just the tolerances between 
the heavenly bodies and uh, the crystal. Or, they're so tight. It's, uh, yeah, it's super cool. It's a really well-made thing. Mr. Climber? Cosine. I mean, cool. that, that, that's the one for sure. Oh, well, you guys got the answer right. That is... <laughs> oh, we did. Oh, how nice. Also what I would pick. Uh, I think a lot of, and I can be frank, I think a lot of the watch manufacturers struggle with making complicated watches that are also easy to wear and nice to look at. And I think that Van Cleef really nailed this one because it's both interesting and I would actually wear this. And now a word from this week's sponsor. Hook and Albert is a modern travel brand, and I'm here with CEO Adam Schoenberg to dive into how the brand got started. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So when did you have the idea to start Hook and Albert? 2009 was the year. We were in a wedding in Sweden when my co-founder, Corey, and I reconnected. We were in tuxedos wearing crazy colored socks, and in 2009, that was not a thing. Naturally, we started talking about socks that led to accessories and it led to the process for us to go and find these accessories. And we realized it was a scavenger hunt. It was that thought process that really was the beginning of Hook and Albert. So when you got started, you were known for colorful accessories, shoelaces, lapel flowers. How did you then transition into being a travel brand? About five years ago from traveling all the time to different markets, um, I wanted to simplify my journey. I would get on a plane with a garment bag, a briefcase, and an overnight bag, and I wanted to combine all those things into one. So we really challenged our design director to come up with a solution, and she came up with our garment weekender bag. When we launched that product, it was something brand new to the marketplace. It fit within what we call the sprint traveler lifestyle, someone who's traveling for one to three days, and it became endorsed by GQ and Esquire and Condé Nast Traveler said it was the only weekend bag that you needed that was also a garment bag. So that naturally pushed us into the bag space and we've never looked back. So all these major brands picked up the line. What is it that you think they saw in you? I think early on when we did this, it was brand new product that the marketplace hadn't seen. No one was doing colored dress shoelaces. No one was bringing attention back to the lapel of a jacket. So when we went in with these amazing accessories, we also were showing the retailers that this could be a brand new vertical for them from a revenue standpoint. And they believed in it. They got behind it. And then, of course, what we thought actually happened, folks like Neiman Marcus sold more shoelaces per unit than any other thing in their furnishings department. All of a sudden, um, Saks was selling more suits, no matter if they were 500 or 10,000, because they were putting flowers on them. So not only was it an instrument to sell more product, but their customers loved them because they were getting compliments on things that they never had before. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll, uh, we're going to have more from you next week. Thanks for having me. Let's get back to the show. Then we have another category, mechanical exception, which I don't know how this is any different from complications, but you know, we're again dealing with what we're dealing with here. So let's just let's just let's just roll with it. We've got six six watches here. I would describe uh, the technical term is bonkers. Um, let's Wait, let's what? huh? What's the technical term? Bonkers. They are bonkers. Oh, it's not okay. actually a technical okay. term. That was a joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, I'm here. I am here all week. Um, we need Scott Schumann right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do. do. Yeah. Shout out to you, Scott Schumann. Yeah. John, how about you start us off here? Sure. I'm going to go with the Grubel 4C Grand Sonnery. Yeah. Um, but wasn't this watch from last year? Like, I feel like this is not a not a brand new watch. So I'll answer that one because that's something that I I questioned often and early in my, my role as a juror. So it's actually not about when they're introduced, it's about when they go on sale. Uh, and so it's, I think the rule is, I forget what it is now, they may have changed it, but when I was there, it was like 11 pieces have to have been sold uh, in that calendar year. 
Uh, and so I believe that is why the Grubel is is in this because they introduced it and then it took some time to make it and and now here we are. There you go. And like Stephen said, a grand sonnery. If that's not a complication, I don't know what is, but uh, that gets my vote. Cara. I'm going for the Bulgari Octofinissimo. I have a soft spot for it, and it actually sounds very amazing. It does. Person. It sounds yeah, really good. It's got really a solid, it's a carbon yeah, fiber case with is, a carbon fiber dial with cutouts. It's. It doesn't sound, sound like any good, other minute it's, Yeah, it's amazing. Would you say it's bonkers? I would say it's bonkers. Car <laughs> <laughs> is here staring daggers at me, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna co-sign and say say the Bulgari. You know, I think the Grubel is is incredible. It's an incredible piece of engineering. I don't know. The Bulgari just speaks to me in a, another way. That's cool. Um, so these are all bonkers watches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we want slightly more approachable watches, we have the uh, Petit Agui, which is another kind of budget-driven category. Um, these need to be under 6,500 Swiss francs. So this was traditionally the, the kind of budget category. Um, and then the challenge was introduced to kind of even undercut this. So this is kind of a more, a more middle price range. Um, Cara, what would you pick from this selection? What would I pick? Let's see. I think all of these are actually very interesting. Well, not all, but I think they're interesting. Um, I think that Ming has had a lot of traction this year, and so I think that it would be nice to see them win something and kind of go on the map. Nice. John? Uh, I'm going to second that with the Ming 1901. Um, I think, I mean, I really like the way Ming watches look. Um, I've had a chance to wear one for a little while, and I really enjoyed it to the point where I've even considered buying one. Okay. Um, I feel like... Uh, and, I, and I mean this is no slight to either brand. Um, Ming's aesthetic is kind of like what La Laurent Ferrier would look like if Laurent Ferrier was interested in making uh, approachably priced watches. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that yeah. kind of makes sense. Yeah. Ben? Um, you know, if, if Habring had not won this award, I don't know, like four to the last five years, I would probably give it to them. But, like, they, you know, they do amazing things, Maria and, and Richard, uh, with split seconds and deadbeats, they're they're basically the favorite every year for this award. So with that in mind, I would probably give it to Ming because I think they're, they're doing a really good job. So I would agree with you. I also, my initial instinct was the Habering Doppel Felix, which is their new uh, in-house Doppel chronograph. You can have it with or without a date. It's a, it's a really unbelievable watch for, for the money. Um, that was my instinct. I hear where you guys are coming from with Ming, and I don't disagree but I'm going to go with the Longine. Um, here they have the new the new record collection, which is it's an automatic uh, chronometer certified watch uh, for a really good price. And I'm going to pick it because I think it's easy to get wrapped up in watches that like, quote unquote, like enthusiasts buy. But like this is a watch that ten, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of people will buy this year. Right. And it's a really damn good watch. Um, and it's exciting to see brands putting energy into creating like sort of mass consumer level products that that are genuinely good and interesting so i'm in, i'm into that i get it um chronograph time chronograph category is always crowded and there are lots of options and they're usually all pretty good options um ben let's let's start with you here um you know I, i'm a chronograph guy a lot of stuff here you know the zenith has been around since 1969. The Bamford is neat, but the chronograph hasn't been touched. Uh, so to me, it's really between the, the Mont Blanc and the Singer. The Singer uses the same movement as the Fabergé, um, you know, which is Nashenhorn movement. Um, so I would probably give it to them. I love the Mont Blanc, and again, I would buy the Mont Blanc well before I would buy the, the Singer. Uh, and I think it's a more beautiful movement and, 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 you know, kind of a more classical one. But it's nothing new. You know, they've been doing this for a few years. Yeah. It's a great, you know, it, it, it's up there. I mean, it's probably... 
top three, top four hand-wound movements in the world. Uh, but because the, the singer uses this really interesting new movement, I'd, I'd go with that. Sweet. John? Um, I'm going to go with the Mont Blanc. Uh, I just, the move, like Ben said, the movement is so beautiful. And um, in general, the movements and specifically the chronographs that come out of, that come out of Villaray are just like really, there's, they're as good as anything out there. And uh, so I think uh, it wins this category for me. Cara. I'm also, also going to go with the Mont Blanc. Oh, man. We have another, another unanimous decision here. Yeah. The move, it's really beautiful. It's great. I mean, and this is the, the 1858 Mono Pusher, so it's got that, that bright, like, kind of summer screen dial. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cool watch. And it's yeah. steel. It's 40 millimeters. It's like, it's, it's a high-end chronograph you can actually wear. You know, it's less of, like, a concept piece and more of an everyday kind of piece, which I'm into. Um, let's go to the artistic crafts category. This one's a little bit different. Uh, you know, it's less about movements and less about, you know, pure watchmaking. And this is more about uh, things like enameling and marquetry and guilloche. So which of these six extremely over-the-top watches um, would you pick, John? Uh, I'm going to pick the Hermes Robe de Soir. Did I say that right? I think so. Um, I'll say so. It's, an, it's a, you know, it's a um, marquetry dial, um, but the, the little pieces are not wood or... Or uh, little, it's they're little pieces of leather, uh, is my understanding, which I've never heard of before, and it's uh, they, it's really beautiful. Yeah, car. Well, it's a close call between the Hermes and the Piaget. Not, I love the Piaget, but I and don't, what's special about the Piaget? It's the malachite hardstone dial, which they they're known for, is kind of their. But it's like it's inset pieces too, right? Yes, like it's exactly. Not it's cut into piece. swirls and exactly in place with like that, tourbillon. which is with a tourbillon. I don't like tourbillon. tourbillon. I don't like tourbillons. You heard it here first. Just saying. It's between the Piaget and the Hermes. Um, I think the Hermes is really... It's impressive that Cut used leather to kind of lay that out. Um, so I'll go with the Hermes on that one because it's kind of a new thing. But I do appreciate the Malachite. And Malachite's super hot right now. You heard it. That you heard here first. Malachite, <laughs> Malachite so hot right now. Um, I might go with the Vacheron here, actually. So this is one of the Metier uh, Les Aristir, um, which... It's not my taste at all. Uh, to be clear, this is an 18th century hot air balloon on a dial, which is like, you know, if you know me, you know that's totally my speed. Yeah. Um, I'm all about those. Were you wearing century. one of those in the office yesterday? Yeah, 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 yeah. A hot air balloon, like a whole hot air balloon. Wait, real talk, didn't you? Um, Josh, just, didn't you that, go in a hot air balloon? Oh, uh, that's true. Actually, I did, yeah. yeah, you did. Yeah. Very scary for someone with vertigo. It's not something. Uh, yeah, we oh, should boy. not have sent you on the trip. That was a bad idea. Um, probably my fault, but. Um, yeah, this isn't my speed at all, aesthetically, personally, but um, Vacheron was actually the first kind of high-end manufacturer. I think it was the first manufacturer ever that I, I visited. Um, and they have this whole department in-house that does these sorts of things. It's super impressive. Nobody else who's doing the level of watchmaking they're doing cares this much about these crafts. Uh, and I think this watch to me really embodies like the spirit of what an, an artistic watch can be. I could not have said that any better myself, oh, Steve. Vacheron all the way. Uh, Perfect. They, they they just do it. You know that they no. You know you don't hear about this at all. You hear about Cornavash and whatever uh, overseas, but like they do this stuff all the time. Uh, it's probably pretty difficult to sell, but they continue to do it. And they've got a serious department dedicated to it. So so Vacheron for me. Sweet. Uh, while we're on things like this, let's go to the jewelry category. Um, I'm going to blow up your spot here, Kara, yes. and say, I why don't you guys guess what I pick Bulgari. on this? Bulgari. Uh, Van Cleef. I didn't even see that. Interesting. Wait, you think Kara picked Van Cleef? I think Kara picked uh, Van Cleef. So you guys... Interesting. I'm actually torn. 
Between, Which did you pick? Between the Bulgreave Sorpenti and the Van Cleef. Because I tried the Van Cleef one on, and it's it's really amazing. Can I see the Van Cleef? Because it's it. all these little stones. But wait, which With a little oh, okay. ladybug. Yeah. I would choose a Serpenti. Yeah, Come there on. we go. Sorry. It's just awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I'm just can we make that the that. episode title here? <laughs> it's just awesome. But uh, it is, actually. It is. It is <laughs> just awesome. Yeah, uh, Serpenti's the best. Yeah, if you, if you haven't seen a Serpenti in the metal, that's another thing. Like, go try one on. Uh, yeah. Even if you're a dude and they don't make Serpentis for men. Yet. Yet. <laughs> We're going to blow that up. Yeah. Um, you should go try one on. They're, they're super cool. They're really fun. Uh, it's a different way to, I guess, enjoy enjoy watchmaking. But that brings us to the end of the categories. But there's one more award, uh, and that's the Aguidor, uh, which is the, if you'll pardon my awful French, um, <laughs> that's kind of the, the grand prize. So at the actual Grand Prix, um, the watch that wins this prize, the sort of best in show, can't also win its category. Uh, we will place no such constraints okay, on, on anyone here. So let's go around. Let's start with Kara. Okay. Um, and let's say, what do you think of all of the watches that we have talked about um, here for you takes the cake as the the watch of the year? Okay, so I'm going to circle back to the Bulgari Octo Finissimo Turbion Automatic because it broke three world records. Okay. So, like, that's kind of... All right. That, you know what I mean? You can't argue that's with that logic. Said. Yep. Um, all right. John? I'm um, just looking back over my list of selections, and I think among these, the coolest watch, the best watch, is the Grubel 4C Grand Sonnery. Uh, I think the fact that a, you know, a smaller company was able to produce something like this, and then rumor has it, um, uh, help supply other larger brands with it is quite impressive. Uh, so that gets my vote. Ben, Grubel Forzi. Oh, yeah. all right. Yeah, I mean, I think the Bulgari is right up there for sure, and I would, I wouldn't be surprised if the Bulgari actually wins. Um, but the Grubel is, uh, you know, I've said this on the site many times. Like nobody's really doing what what Grubel's doing. Like. They're doing the best watchmaking possible and not caring what it costs and not, you know, their least expensive watch starts at $140,000 in steel, yeah, something yeah. like that. Uh, and even that is so over the top. You that know, watch I, is sick. It is. Uh, I really respect uh, what, what they're doing. And I, I, a Grand Sonnery is no joke. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. How can you not respect them? Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to go play totally true to form and uh, go with a time-only watch here. Uh, I think the Acrivia Chronomet Contemporane, uh, that watch just... I have not been that blown away by a watch in a long time. Like I sat down and looked at that and was like, "Holy shit!" You what can is cop this? that? Am I? Yeah. I don't know. I you mean, Rex it. is in New York this week. Cop it. Uh, cop it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. There we go. Ben. Ben said so. I'm gonna cop one. Um, it's just awesome. Uh, I think it's like everything that modern watchmaking can and should be. It doesn't look at all like a traditional watch. Um, but all those kind of traditional hand finishing techniques are are there and just kind of to the most superlative level. Um. And the fact that it's all being done by like these brothers and a handful of other watchmakers who are helping them, they're turning out a couple dozen watches a year. It's it's really, you know, it's rare that I would say this, but I think this is really like Philippe Dufour level stuff. Um, and in fact, I ran into Philippe Dufour at the booth looking at this watch uh, back in Basel. So yeah, for me, that's, that's, I think this is a brand I had not paid attention to at all and didn't really care about. And now it's one I'm expecting really big things from. So... Cool. So uh, the awards are November 9th. We'll have live coverage on the site, live coverage all over social. Uh, Make sure you follow all of our accounts and uh, look out also for the Monday after the Grand Prix. 
Uh, Jack and I will be in Geneva together and are going to record our reactions the morning after the awards. So we'll get to see how many of these we got right, how many we totally missed, and we'll get some thoughts from Jack, uh, some inside inside scoop kind of, I guess, on the uh, the deliberation process. Uh, Jack will, I think, be presenting an award, so we'll yep. get a little bit on that and, uh, yeah, kind of give you the full, the full debrief. So we're going to take a quick break here, and then when we come back um, just the day after the Grand Prix, starting that Saturday, are the fall auctions in Geneva. So we're going to go through the catalogs here and kind of give you some of our, our highlights and some trends we've spotted based on the new catalog. So we'll be right back. All right, cool. We're back. Um, let's get into the auctions. So Phillips uh, is having their sale across two days. Christie's and Sotheby's are also hosting sales that weekend, kind of bleeding into the early part of the following week. Um, these are when the big sales start. These sales and then the December sales are, are kind of when all the big the big pieces come out for the year uh, to kind of wrap the year up. So thought it would be good to start by seeing what everybody's standout lots are. Like just browsing through the catalog, what were the watches that you were like, oh my god, I have to have to pay attention to this one, Ben? Uh, yeah, I think the, the the first takeaway here is that Phillips does not have the top lots this time around. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, their lead lot is a 3497 Platinum Naked. doesn't even have a box and papers. Uh, I mean, it's still a million-dollar watch. It's still amazing, but it's not. They're used to being, you know, the Paul Newman, Paul Newman, some crazy 2499. This time around, Sotheby's seems to have that stuff. I would agree. Um, they've got an Asprey signed 2499, which could be a 2 or $3 million watch easy. Uh, Reardon Christie's has a uh, Serpico First Series 2499, which is fresh to market like that that's a multi-million dollar watch yeah um so you know i think sotheby's with 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 their 2499 they've got this pulsation dial rolex that's pretty neat uh you know phillips i think has the the strongest catalog still like it's the most balanced and i think in some ways it's it's good for them and it's good for the industry to have kind of the attention elsewhere uh on the top lots anyway um phillips has some crazy stuff what do they have i don't even know well, they have a Rainbow Daytona. <laughs> That's true. They, they do have a Rainbow Daytona. And they also have a GMT. And, and they have GMT. a GMT as the first yeah. lot. And they're both in the first 10 lots. Yeah. 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 So there's, a, there's two 2018 Rolex releases in the first yeah. 10 lots. And the they show. have a paddock. The Paddock Pilot they released last year. They have the Pilot Watch. They also have yeah. a steel Nautilus Tiffany sign that was sold like a month ago or like yeah. two months ago. So somebody's going to get a phone call crazy. From, from Tiffany <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> They've got some nice Speedmasters as well. Yeah. And one that may be a contender to to break a record again. Yeah, 2015. Yeah. Yeah. The super uh, tropical dial. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Is yeah. that part of the Four Musketeers? Uh, I think so. Okay. I saw, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and then also they have a, uh, well, they have a Hoyer Carrera 1158 Chronomatic. Chronomatic and gold, yeah. yeah. That's a new yeah. watch. I, I, Jeff Stein and I saw that watch on Chrono 24, uh, and we were, like, debating if one of us should buy it for one night, and then by the morning it had already, it had already sold, clearly by somebody that was to consign it to Phillips. Yeah. That's a really rare watch. That, mm-hmm. That's as rare as it gets for Hoyer's. Yeah. Yeah. Something I've noticed is there are so many more Hoyers now or like any kind of like those niche vintage brands that like were not like when I was at Sotheby's, we did not take them. Yeah. Like they were all under $5,000, so they just didn't make into the catalog. And I noticed that there's just such a big influx of those types of watches. Well, they're the no catalogs. longer under $5,000. Exactly. So, you know, that, yeah, that, that, that that's helps. the Which I think thing. is interesting. Yeah. And I mean, Rolexes at this point are just so out of touch. You know, the prices are so beyond what the, the average guy or gal can afford that like Hoyer has picked up. Hoyer is pretty soft right now, you know, relatively speaking. But, uh, you know, all these other brands like Universal selling for $20,000, like yeah. that same watch we talked about the other day used to sell for three, you know, not that long ago. And one other thing that we uh, that caught all of our eyes was the fact that 
that there is uh, our limited edition with Laurent Ferrier. Yeah, is in the yeah. <laughs> that's true. So that's neat. The first uh, LE to come up at a big auction. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that'll be exciting for sure. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where we sold that watch out. We did fifteen at sixty thousand. We sold them out in like a business day. Uh, and there is a waiting list, so I, I expect it to do pretty well. But but who knows? Uh, it's a, it's a neat watch. There's yeah. also an original skipper in Christie's catalog. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's not the best quality. Like it's got a replacement hand and, and whatever. But I mean, it's it's a neat watch for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the first one to criticize the Daytona fever, but the uh, pulsometer Daytona that Sotheby's has is an unbelievable, unbelievable watch. It's yeah. a six two three nine with a pulsometer. Um, it's a it's a really special watch. It's estimated at five hundred thousand to a million, but I think I think it'll do a big number for sure. Oh yeah, a watch that like if, if I had my my druthers and had a lot more money than I do would be this Pinkle five thirty Paddock, uh, which is the oversized chronograph from from the thirties and forties. This one has particular interest to me because this is actually, although not published, a Jean Claude Beaver's watch. So this watch I handled and talked about on Talking Watches. Oh yeah, uh, oh, and yeah. this was the one I had at his collection. I was like, man, like that—that's the one, you know, because there's no—it's not a perpetual, so you don't have to deal with the manually wound perpetual stuff. It's just a Chrono, five thirty super rare. That, that to me is is just a killer. Um, this Longines is is a little bit controversial. Some people say it's correct. Some people say it's not. And which watch is that? It's a Longines thirteen uh, ZN black pulsation dial. The, the look is killer, and if it's correct, it's insane. But there's some some doubt about that uh, amongst Longines people. This nineteen twenties uh, mono pusher uh, Patek is a neat thing. Uh, it is probably too early to get like big bucks, you know. But it's definitely the most interesting or the most historically important watch. This is one of the very first chronographs Patek made as a wristwatch. Yeah. And I mean, if we're going off off those so-called like cover lots, I think the Killy is a really, really nice watch. And I think those, yep. you know, again, with the Daytona fever, I think those watches are going to keep going up and up and up. Yeah, uh, that's a nice one. Become more savvy. Yep. Uh, another neat watch is this left-handed gold GMT. That watch is super mm. cool. It's, it's a left-handed gold GMT. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's a neat thing. Um, these, these we've got a, a Phillips has a, a few of these early APs, like really early APs, like from the 40s and 50s. 5970 Tiffany sign, which I've seen one other in my life, so that that's a rare watch. Yeah. Um, I've got some good stuff. Cool. Um, what would what could happen this auction week that would actually surprise you? I mean, often we go into this and it's like, every, there's all this excitement, but then like ultimately everything that happens is exactly what we'd expect, right? Like Daytona set records, a new Speedmaster sets a new Speedmaster record, uh, the vintage complicated double sign Patek does extremely well. Like these, these are all things that like, they get big applause in the auction room and we cover them because they're still news, but they're not surprising at all. Like what, what could happen that would shock you or, or excite you? I would be shocked if we didn't see some kind of record like that. I know it's not the kind of answer you were looking for, but no, that, that, that to me would be the kind of. Do you think that's a real possibility? Um, uh, not really. <laughs> okay. I, th- I think we're bound to see something that will surprise us. Yeah. Okay. Cara. Well, I secretly, well, this is really bad, but I like, sometimes when lots are pulled last minute because oh, it's always because like I know what it's like on the other side and it's True. really stressful so it's kind of like I feel like in a way I, like, I feel empathy for them going through that but also it's kind of like what happened yeah do you think there's anything that you've heard chatter about no that, like, I haven't heard any chatter about <laughs> anything but you never know all right Ben anything you're uh, you're hoping to see uh, nothing that I'm really hoping to see. I mean, I think the big surprise again was that those those big watches didn't go to Phillips, you know, uh, after the record that they've had selling big watches. But I yeah. think, I think you know, I think we might see some softening of the Daytonas. You know, they're they're yeah. still you know everybody wants them still, but like there's a lot of them out there and the prices are, are really creeping. You know, a standard six two six three big red is a hundred grand without box Which is papers. Crazy. Like that's, 
it's it's a lot. And I think sooner or later, people are just going to reach reach kind of a breaking point. But I, I don't expect that to happen this time. But if it did, it wouldn't be that surprising. Is there anything you guys wish we were seeing more of or less of in these in these catalogs? I think for, for me, it's like I, I don't want watches that have been passed around for years unless I know who the collectors were. Like if, if John Goldberger had a watch, I would love to own it, of course. But a lot of these guys, I, I don't want their fingerprints on my watches, you know. So I think it really it would be a great service if, if these guys, if all the auction houses made a better or had a more concise system of telling you if this was an original owner of watch or not and could prove it. And so like right now, if a, if a vintage watch that's offered to me is from the original owner or from the family of an original owner and has one degree of separation, meaning like the dealer, you know, dealer got it and they can prove that they got it from a family, I'm interested. If, if not, I, I'm probably not interested. And I think a lot of dealers are, are becoming, I'm sorry, a lot of collectors are becoming that way. Uh, so I think figuring out a way to, to really indicate what's really fresh to market and correct from like a private versus like, you know, some Italian dealer or some you know Japanese dealer uh, w- would go a long way. Nice. John? Um, well, I guess I'd like to see more, uh, uh, just a, a greater diversity of watches. And you do see some of that, especially as you really start looking through the catalog. But um, I guess it's just mainly due to market forces. You see so many Daytonas, page after page of them. A lot of them are fantastic. Not all of them are that great. Um, yeah. 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 Cara? I'd say kind of lower value lots. I mean, there's so many vintage Rolexes that have just gone crazy now. You can't really can't really find anything that is under $10,000. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think actually for me, the Phillips sale has quite a few sleepers in it. And they're like, they're not, they're not crazy desirable watches. But like, there's an Eberhard Contograph that has a pretty low estimate. That's a super cool watch. Like, it's not going to you know be the star of of actually i won't say it won't be the star of anybody's collection but it's it's not going to be the kind of watch that you resell in five years for 10x what you paid for it but it's an awesome watch to wear and there's a breguet um dress watch that's like 33 millimeter breguet in white gold on a bracelet and that watch is like a 10 or twelve thousand dollar estimate like a a 1960s breguet on a bracelet in white gold for ten or fifteen thousand dollars is a really cool watch and um I'd recommend, like, if you're looking at these catalogs, go look at them online and sort them from least expensive to most expensive and look at what the first, like, 20 watches are. Uh, And I think all three major sales, Sotheby's, Phillips, and Christie's, um, all have interesting lots that are are worth paying attention to. And you also often don't get those watches in the touring previews. Like, I know Phillips, there were five or six watches I wanted to look at personally uh, that were not in New York. So I'll have to check them out when I'm in, in Geneva. Uh, if you get the opportunity to go to Geneva, check those watches out in the preview because a lot of buyers outside who didn't get to go see them will just pass on them. So you you might actually stand a chance of getting a better deal. Yeah. Uh, one other watch I want to mention: Sotheby's has a universal Polaruder that yeah. has a SAS style. Oh yeah, that watch uh, is awesome. Yeah, and that watch was in you know the story goes that that watch was developed for SAS, a Scandinavian airline, uh, and I've never seen one that has SAS on the dial. So that's yeah, great. and it's a like creamy colored yeah. dial, not a black dial. Yeah, it's really awesome. One other uh, watch that caught my eye was Lot 115 in Philips, which is this uh, Zinn um, uh, chronograph calendar watch. Okay. Which was pretty neat, yeah. Sweet. Well, we're going to have tons of auction coverage for you between now and the actual sales. Um, Again, lots of live coverage. I'll be there on the ground. Jack will be there on the ground. Um, And, yeah, again, keep your eye on on our Instagram, at Hodinky, um, and then on the site, and we'll, we'll have lots more coming for you. Uh, thanks to all three of you guys for joining us today. I know it's hard getting everybody around the table, but it's fun when we can. Thanks, Stevie. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys.
Thank you to Ben, Kara, and John for joining us. This week's episode was recorded at Mirror Tone Studios in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.